Matthew 21. We could read more, but uh, uh, just for the sake of us getting started, let's start with verse 8. It says, And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to, uh, to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Now what I want to do today, I want to use for a title this morning, Hosanna to the son of David. And we want to accomplish two things. First of all, we're going to define the word Hosanna for you. So we'll spend just a little bit of time doing that. But the greatest focus for this morning's message is going to be the significance of what the Bible means when Jesus is referred to as the son of David. Greater significance than I believe most of us have ever realized. But let me tell you, we're going to realize the significance here today. Um, let's uh, define the word Hosanna. Hosanna is actually the, the Greek spelling for two Hebrew words that mean save now. As a matter of fact, if, if that first uh, scripture verse can go up on the screen. We're going to go and uh, have us a little Bible study setting here today. You see Psalm 118 up there. Let's read it together. This is starting with verse 21. This is a messianic psalm. What that means is that this is a psalm that is predicting and speaking of the coming Messiah. That's why it's called messianic. Verse 21 says, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now. That's where the word Hosanna comes from right there. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. 
Now, there's no doubt of whom this is speaking because, first of all, I want you to realize this, that in the New Testament you see multiple references to Jesus being the stone that the builders rejected who became the chief cornerstone. But then that word saved now is what in Greek is Hosanna. And so what the, the multitudes were saying to Jesus on that day, and not just the multitudes greeting him as he was coming into the city, but the children who were in the temple, as, as one of the later verses we read said, they were saying, save now, son of David. Now, now you see that these people knew the word and they knew what they were talking about because along with saying save now, what else did they say? They quoted this psalm when they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when they said save now, who were they addressing that to? They said, save now, Hosanna, son of David. Now, what is the significance of the son of David and that Jesus was the son of David? And I do not mean a son of David because multiple Israelites could trace their lineage back to David. But this was not just that you were descendant from David. This was the son of David, a, a, a specific person ordained by God to come through the lineage of David who would actually sit on the throne of David and that of his kingdom there would be no end. Hallelujah. So now that we know what Hosanna means, what's son of David all about? And that's why I want to hit four areas today. I want to talk about the identification of the son of David. We're going to identify who he is. We're going to talk about the expectation of the son of David. What did people expect that when he showed up, when the son of David who was prophesied showed up, what would he do? What would he be like? What kind of signals would we have to know that this was him? The expectation of the son of David. The third thing we're going to see is the implementation of the son of David. What did he come to implement? What did he come to put into force and put into effect? And finally, we're going to see the authorization of the son of David. What was he authorized to do? Are you ready? Praise the Lord. Go to the next verse on the screen. What we're going to do, we're going to be interactive today. I'm not going to spoil you so much that, that, that you don't turn anywhere because we're still going to turn in our Bibles. But there's some things that I wanted you to see that I wanted to do more than quote. So those we're going to put up here. Now this should be Isaiah 11.1. 1. Yes, it is. Let's read that together. It says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now we're talking here about the identification of the son of David. And do you know who Jesse is? Jesse is David's father. Jesse is David's father. So this is a, a, a prophecy, a prediction of the Holy Ghost through his servant, the prophet Isaiah, that said that there's a, a rod coming forth out of the stem of Jesse, a branch that will grow out of his roots. Go to the next verse, please. 
That's Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. And also you see the same wording over in 33, uh, uh, Jeremiah 33, 15 through 16. This says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. And then it goes on to say, now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Come on, somebody. Who might that be? Well, let me tell you this. The apostle Paul said it very well when he said that Jesus has been made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Is Jesus the Lord our righteousness? You know he is. While you go into Revelation, open your Bibles to Revelation 5 and let me allude to this. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary to give her the big announcement that we've come to know and love over the years and is at the root of our celebration of Christmas. He said, don't be afraid, Mary. He said, you found favor with God and you'll conceive in your womb, bring forth the son and shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the son of the highest. And then he says, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Hallelujah. So we're seeing the identity of this son of David. Do you have Revelation 5? How many of you in reading Revelation, whether you understood it or not, heard of something called the seven seals? And they had a problem. The problem was this. They were looking for somebody who was worthy to open the seven seals. And they, they were weeping because they couldn't find anybody. But then somebody showed up with some good news. Look at verse 5 of chapter 5. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Someone say, that's Jesus. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. Jesus is the root of David. Now, while we're in Revelation, go to Revelation 22. That's the very last chapter of the Bible. And if you had any question about anything else, you don't have any question about how Jesus would clearly identify himself. And Jesus says in this verse here, uh, chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 16, he said, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So any question who this branch that was supposed to come from David's descendants, this, this rod from the stem of Jesse, this branch that would grow out of his roots, this one who would reign on the throne of his father David, any question who it is, absolutely not. 
The Bible's made it clear. Jesus said it himself when he uttered these words, I am the root and the offspring of David. He is the son of David. So that's the identification or the identity of the son of David. Now, let me ask you this. What was the expectation of the son of David? That's the second thing we need to see. The expectation. First of all, I want to go to the Old Testament and check something out first. Go to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. And what we're going to do is we're, we're going to look at some prediction that the Holy Ghost made through the prophet Ezekiel. But then we're also going to do something else. We're going to look at some hints that we get from the people of Jesus' day and what their mentality was concerning who the son of David was, what he was going to be like, uh, certain things that he would be doing, certain ways that he would be being that would give them a clue that he was the one who was talked about, the one who was predicted, the son of David. Ezekiel 34. It's a very interesting chapter because it starts out with God having a complaint about the shepherds of Israel. And uh, if you look at verse 4, you, you see one of God's main complaints about the shepherds that day. And we're going to read that together. Ezekiel 34, verse 4, says, The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost. So God's complaint against the shepherds of that day was that there were some key things that were important to his heart that they were not doing. They were not strengthening the weak, healing the sick, binding up the broken, bringing back what was driven away, and seeking after what was lost. Right in the same chapter, God goes on to describe what he does as shepherd and how he shepherds. That is quite contrary to how those others were shepherding in that day. How does God shepherd? Look at verse 15 and 16, right there in the same chapter. God says, I will feed my flock. I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. So we see the difference between the way God was doing it and the way those other shepherds of the day were doing it. Now, right there in the same chapter, look at verse 23. Oh, come on. Verse 23, God is speaking. He says, I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. My servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, you need to understand this, that this is a prophecy concerning the son of David who was to come, and not David himself, because at the time Ezekiel's prophesying this, David's already dead. So this David, who would be the shepherd, 
It's talking about the son of David, the descendant of David, that God swore to an oath with him would sit on his throne. Now, let me ask you a question. Seeing God's complaint about the shepherds of that day, seeing God's description of the way that he would shepherd and does shepherd, and then seeing the fact that God said he's raising up the son of David to be a shepherd, do you think much that God would raise up the son of David uh, to, to shepherd and have an expectation of him to shepherd the flock in the same way that God the Father would? Do you think God's going to have him do it differently than the way he does it? I don't think so. Because it's already proven right there in that chapter, God had a problem with the people who weren't shepherding the flock his way. So therefore, there would be a reasonable expectation for the shepherd, the son of David, who was to shepherd the sheep, to shepherd the sheep in the same manner that God the Father would. Which means that it would be very reasonable to think that David, the shepherd of the sheep, would feed the flock, make them lie down, seek what was lost, bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. FCC, are you with me? Now, go to Matthew chapter 12. Oh, yeah, we're making a case this morning, y'all. Hallelujah. Because I want you to know the fact that Jesus is the son of David is not some meaningless term that spreads throughout the Bible, but it is something that is so totally, absolutely significant to us today on April 17th, 2011. And the reason why, because Jesus is still the same. He's still the same. He's not changed. Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not different. That's the significance. So whatever benefit the people of God could receive from him being the son of David 2,000 years ago, he's still the son of David today. And the benefit for the people of God is still the same. Now, what we're talking about here is the expectation of the son of David. Now, we looked in Ezekiel to get some kind of background here as far as the, uh, the, the thinking in the mind of God behind the way a shepherd should shepherd the sheep. He, he talked about what was the wrong way to do it, described what was the right way to do it, and then talked about the son of David that he was ordaining as shepherd over his sheep. Now, Matthew 12, look at verse 22. It said, then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now, it's not a few people who said this. I want you to read this very closely. It's, it's not well, one or two here or there. It's not even one multitude that said it. I'm reading out the New King James Bible here. It says that 
all the multitudes were amazed. Verse 23, all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Why would they make a statement like that? Because there was an expectation in their part based on what they knew of the scripture that when the son of David would come, that he would be one who was strengthening the sick and binding up the broken and taking those that were lost and bringing them back home. There was an expectation. And so therefore, when they started seeing these signs, they said, hmm, could this be? The son of David. Why would they make that statement? Because they had an expectation that when he showed up, this is the kind of stuff he would be doing. Now, we're right there in Matthew. Go back. Look at Matthew 9. We're going to camp out in Matthew for a few minutes here. Oh, yeah. Hallelujah. Matthew 9 Let's start reading with verse 27. It says, when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. Go to Matthew 15. Oh, hallelujah. Matthew 15, verse 21. says, then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon possessed. Verse 28 says that Jesus answered her and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. So we see a pattern here. People going to Jesus and calling him son of David. And, and they're saying this, son of David, have mercy on me. Let's go to another place in Matthew. Go to Matthew 20. Just a few pages forward. Matthew 20. Mm-mm-mm. Hallelujah. Verse 29 of Matthew 20 says this. Now, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road where they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed 
him. Now, let's get that next verse up on the screen. Oh, here we go. This is Isaiah 55, verse 3. Read it with me. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you the sure mercies of David. Now, we're going somewhere with this, y'all. Seeing this context of what we just read and these people crying out, these people that, that, that uh, were oppressed by evil spirits, these people that had sickness on them, they were blind, could not see, were deaf or mute, whatever the case was. And they cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Why on earth would they be doing such a thing? Because knowing the scripture that the son of David would come and having an expectation that when he showed up, he'd be doing certain things, they also knew about the sure mercies of David. And that when the son of David showed up, he'd be showing up with the sure mercies of David. So therefore, is it any wonder that when they addressed him as son of David, they would then say, have mercy on me. Take some of those sure mercies and put them on me. Now also check this out, that mercy has to cover more than just forgiveness for your sins. Because these people were not necessarily asking Jesus to forgive them of anything. No, you had blind people asking to receive their sight. You had a, a woman uh, speaking to him on behalf of her daughter who was severely demon-possessed. So that tells me something that included in the mercy of God has to be more than forgiveness of sins. Healings included in the mercy of God. Deliverance from oppression is included in the mercy of God. And if it was that case then, it certainly has to be that case now. How do I know that? Because it's plastered all over the Psalms. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good and his mercy endureth forever. Are you with me? Hallelujah. So therefore, these sure mercies that the son of David brought with him when he showed up on planet earth. Those sure mercies are not fading away, falling away, no longer here. Why do we know that? Because when Isaiah prophesied it, that verse we just looked at, Isaiah 55, 3, he said that the sure mercies of David had to do with an everlasting covenant that he was making with us. You know what everlasting means? It means it lasts forever which means the same sure mercies that were available are available right here today and that the son of David who made those sure mercies available then makes those same sure mercies available to us today. I love sure language, sure mercies. Not uncertain, not iffy, not maybe, could be. You never know what God's going to do. No, sure mercies. I love the scripture that says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Surely he bore my pain and carried my sickness. 
Hallelujah. The word sure as it's used there in Isaiah 55, that verse we looked up on the screen a few moments ago, it, it, it's a Hebrew word, aman, which is from the, uh, it, it's, it's actually the root word for amen. Now, amen is a word I love because, you know, in a general sense, you ask most church people, what does amen mean? And they say, well, amen means so be it. Which, which is true, but by saying that, you're not covering the whole essence of the word because the, the, the word really means sure, certain, basically, no doubt about it. As a matter of fact, the next verse, Revelation 3.14, of the words of Jesus as he was addressing one of the churches, he identified himself as the amen. Take a look at that. Jesus called himself the amen, which he was saying, I'm sure, I'm certain, ain't no doubt about it about me. No doubt about it, about it, doubt it. As a matter of fact, understand this, that in the Greek language, see, we only think of the word amen where we actually see it spelled out A-M-E-N. But do you know when Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly, I say unto you, that the word verily or the word truly is the word Amen. So when Jesus was speaking, he'd be saying, amen, amen, I say unto you. But without knowing a little bit of what's under the surface, we don't know that. We just think amen is the, the, the period on the end of a prayer. But no, I'll tell you this, amen means sure, certain. Jesus called himself the amen, the sure, certain one. We're dealing with the amen mercies of David. Sure, certain, no doubt about it. That's our God. He's not iffy. Nothing iffy about our God. He is sure and he is certain. Hallelujah. Go with me to the book of Acts. I want you to see something because just like the Old Testament spoke of the sure mercies of David, so does the New Testament. Go to Acts 13. I want you to see something here real quickly. Because now what we're beginning to talk about is the implementation of the son of David. What did he come to implement? What did he come to put into effect and to put into force? Acts 13. Let's do this. Let's start reading with verse 32. Paul is preaching here. Paul says, verse 32, and we declare to you glad tidings, the promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Now, when Isaiah talked about the sure mercies of David, he was relating them to the everlasting covenant. When Paul mentioned the sure mercies of David here in Acts 13, 34, he was relating it to the resurrection. So how are the resurrection and the everlasting covenant related? Let's put that next verse up on the screen. Oh, come on, somebody. This is the book of Hebrews chapter 9. It says, for where there is a testament, 
there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Now understand this, testament and covenant is the same thing. We're not talking about two different things. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Testament and covenant are interchangeable terms. So what's the connection between Isaiah relating the sure mercies to the everlasting covenant and Paul relating the sure mercies to the resurrection? Well, let me tell you this, that Jesus died to put the covenant or to put the testament in force. And then he rose from the dead to represent us as uh, to be our advocate, to be our lawyer, and to make sure that we got everything that we were supposed to get. So therefore, he needed to shed the blood of the everlasting covenant and die to put that covenant or testament into effect. But then he rose from the dead. He said, I am he who lives and was dead, but am alive forevermore. And I've got the keys of hell and death. And so he was brought back to life. The spirit of God quickened his mortal body. He was raised from the dead. And what happened now as a uh, one who was previously dead, but now is alive forevermore. He's on the lookout for us to make sure, to ensure that we got everything that was ours. So if we're not getting what was ours, it's not Jesus' fault because he, he rose from the dead. So if we're not getting something that is in the inheritance, then ain't nobody else to look at but us. Because you know, yeah, there's a thief out there, but you don't have to let the thief steal your house. You don't have to let the thief steal anything from you. So if you're not getting what was provided in the everlasting covenant for you to get, you can't blame it on Jesus and say, Jesus, why ain't you giving that to me? Because he already has. Romans 8.32. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I mean, you, you have no concern whatsoever about God being stingy. Whether he's going to give you what is yours or not. No, as a matter of fact, that's the last thing in the world you need to be concerned about. You can know this, that God Almighty has already provided everything that you need. It's wrapped up in this wonderful, new, and everlasting covenant. Can I hear an amen? amen. Go to the next uh, verse up on the screen. This is an amazing thing. This is Hebrews 7.22 that says, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. That word surety in most translations is listed as guarantee. That means Jesus is the absolute guarantee of this new and everlasting covenant. So listen to this regarding the sure mercies of David. The mercies are sure because of the covenant made to ensure them and the surety of the one who backs up the covenant. How do you know these mercies are sure? This is how. Listen to it again. 
You can know that these mercies are sure because of the covenant that was made to ensure them and the surety of the one who backs up the covenant. Hallelujah. Go to the next slide. This is Hebrews 7, verse 25. It says, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Well, now that he's alive, now that he's putting into effect these sure mercies of David, now that he's implementing these things, putting them into force, putting them into effect, what benefit are we getting? You get the benefit of Jesus, God the Son, on the right hand of the Father, praying for you. <coughs> Glory to God. What an amazing thought. And you know, I tell you, it's not wrong to get others to pray for you. I do, I, I do advise not to just get any old anybody praying for you. Not all people are, have faith. You know, you, you, you don't want someone praying for you who doesn't have faith, praying some weak little thing for you that that's, you certainly wouldn't want to get answered. No, in a time of need, you want somebody praying for you who's going to pray the prayer of faith for you. We'll pray the word for you. But here's the thing. How few of us have really understood the fact that Jesus is on the right hand of the Father praying for us, making intercession for us. See, we don't think of Jesus praying for us, and yet we even see that Jesus told Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith would fail not. Jesus is praying for you. That's part of what he came to implement. Go to the next slide. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. It says, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now we see in verse 20, three things that, that have the, uh, shall I say, the David theme to it. We see the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which is tied into the sure mercies of David. We see Jesus being referred to as the great shepherd of the sheep, which is what Ezekiel prophesied, that his servant David, the son of David, would be the shepherd of the sheep. And we also see the reference to the blood of the everlasting covenant, knowing that when Isaiah spoke of the sure mercies of David, he said that the sure mercies of David is the everlasting covenant. So therefore, what is the benefit, what is implemented or put into effect as a result of the sure mercies of David? Verse 21 says it to us, that he's making us complete in every good work to do his will working in us what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. If he's making us complete in every good work to do his will, you know what complete is? Complete is the opposite of incomplete. Have you ever felt incomplete inside? Have you ever gone about a project that you started but did not complete? 
Well, there is no scenario of God having an incomplete project with us because that's not in his nature because he is a completer. He's an author and a finisher, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. <coughs> he will perform it. He will bring it to completion. Glory be to God. Go ahead to uh, Revelation 3. We're going to get ready to wrap up here. So we're talking about the authorization of the son of David. The authorization of the son of David. Now, before we read that, go ahead and put that next verse up on the screen. Isaiah 22, 22. The key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. Who do you think that's talking about? That's why I told you to go to Revelation 3. Look at verse 7 of Revelation 3. This is Jesus speaking. He says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. These things says he who is holy, he who, who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And I've got this to say to you this morning, that when you have on your side the one with the keys of David, it matters not who opposes you or tries to stop your progress because if he opens it, no one's shutting it. If he shuts it, no one's opening it. If God be for you, who can be against you? And who can say no when God says yes? Hallelujah. He's got the keys of David. He's got the keys of David. <laughs> so so, so you, you think about that person you work with. The, 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 that person that you think, you, you know, they, they're just trying to keep me down, you know? Yeah. They, they're, they're always trying to say something to the boss that would elevate them and make other people diminish in the eyes of the authority. You know what I'm saying? You're always trying to play the game, always trying to, to, to uh, uh, jockey for position. And so they're doing all this stuff, trying real hard, staying up late at night, strategizing. <laughs> and what you do, you, you go to bed at night and you just sleep like a baby. <laughs> so they're working real hard. But ultimately, what they, what, what they end up with, after all said and done, is the pink slip. And what you end up with is the job they wanted. Come on, somebody. Hey. He opens. No one shuts. He shuts. No one opens. He's been authorized. 
And as he has been authorized, so has he authorized. For Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. You go therefore. So when he told us to go therefore, well, anytime you see the word therefore, you got to know what it's there for. He said, go therefore, because he's got some authority. But there's no way that the head of the church is going to have authority and the body not have authority. Last time you checked, your head and your body are connected. <laughs> Still connected. Why well, tell you, Jesus and his body are connected. And if he's got the authority, you know he shared the authority with you. And we as believers, now in this time, more than ever before, need to be very much aware of the authority that is ours in Christ. Can I hear an amen? amen. Go ahead and put that last verse up on the screen. This is 2 Corinthians 6 too. Now l let me say this. Remember how we talked about the word Hosanna? And that the word Hosanna means save now? You know what's interesting? Is that we are no longer in a position where we need to ask the Lord to save now because the saving's already been done. So now rather, when we say Hosanna, rather than meaning save now, we're actually meaning, but by, by, when we say that, we're meaning salvation is now. And this verse here, let's read it together out loud. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So we're not waiting for it. We don't have to ask for it. Say, Lord, save now because he's already done the saving. There ain't nothing else left for him to do to save us. The saving's done. Now is the day of salvation. It's time for us to receive our salvation in the fullest extent of the word. Everything that he's provided for us in Christ, it is ours and it is ours now. As we close, let me say this to you. One of the people that uh, in the Gospels that we read about earlier, one of those blind men is actually named in the Gospel of Mark, calls him Blind Bartimaeus. And he was one of the ones who cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Everybody told him, shut up. Being too loud, too crazy, too wild. Keep it down. And what did he do? He pumped up the volume and said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now you read this in Mark 10. It's a very, very interesting detail, but it is not insignificant. That Jesus called for him. And so the, the people that once were telling him to shut up said, be of good cheer. Rise, he's calling for you. It's amazing, before Jesus said something, they say, shut up. But then when Jesus called for him, oh, Bartimaeus. You know people like that, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> but when, when Bartimaeus got up to go to Jesus and said he laid aside his garment, 
No insignificant detail because he was a blind beggar and you know he had to be wearing some ratty old thing for a whole lot of years. And the act of him laying aside his garment was because he was going to the son of David who was going to give him a new identity. So therefore, he was no longer going to be identified as blind beggar by him taking that garment and setting it aside. That was his statement that my blind beggar days are over for good. The son of David is giving me a new identity. He has come to seek that which was lost, to bind up what was broken and to strengthen what was sick. Glory to God. And the son of David is just the same way today as he always has been. Glory to God. Come on, give him glory. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Glory to God. Thank you, Lord. Father, in Jesus' name, we honor you today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the provision that was made for us. We thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus, the son of David, to seek what was lost, to bring back what was driven away, to restore us, to bind up what was broken, and to strengthen what was sick. And I pray, Lord, that there's nobody here. I know that there's nobody here today who has to leave this place broken, sick, lost, out of place. For the great shepherd of the sheep is here to restore them. 